Praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in all his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him on loud, clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, Lord, we do that. For endless days, we will sing your praise. We'll do it because there will never grow a time where you will not be worthy. We will never grow weary of it because you have rescued us. You have redeemed us. You have given us new life. You have put our feet on a solid rock. You have given us hope and a future. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this reminder. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may those be pleasing to you, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So I distinctly remember thinking and feeling this question pretty significantly, I don't know, probably 20 years ago, and that is, what do I do now? What do I do now? I remember feeling nervous, intimidated, unsure, and looking back, it kind of feels silly to me. But I had been working in retail, trying to go through grad school. I just started working there. And I'd had a great trainer, but she had kind of left me on my own. I had to figure out, like, cash register, and I had to figure out the sequence of events, and had to figure out, like, how do I, how do I take... Back then, it was checks and uh, credit cards, and like, how do, you, how do you do that? How do you make sure you greet the customer? All these kind of things. All these things were going around in my head, and she left me. And I, I remember like when I had to do that on my own for the first time. I wonder in some ways what the disciples felt when for the first time they had to launch out without Jesus being physically present with them. So Champ read earlier of these disciples of Jesus that were called, and they had followed Jesus for a few years, and they'd been companions, close companions with him. But we've been going through the book of Acts. We recognize that Jesus ascended. He left his disciples here on earth as he ascended to heaven. They were on their own. What will they do? Well, actually, we know from Acts 1, we don't have to wonder about that question. We know exactly what they did. So last week, just by way of review before we dig into this week's uh, scripture, one thing we know they did is they did what Jesus told them to do. That's exactly what disciples do. They do what Jesus tells them to do. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you are baptized, immersed with the Holy Spirit. And so they wait in Jerusalem until they are baptized, immersed in the Holy Spirit. They do what Jesus tells them to do. But we notice they did something else in Acts 1.14. Again, we looked at this last week. They also gather together as a community. That's what disciples do. They, they gather together as the community of Jesus. That's what we continue to, continue to do. That's what we're still doing. We're gathering together 
as the community of Jesus. They're devoted. I mean, Jesus' 11 apostles at that point were there. His brothers were there, his biological family. But, but there are women there as well, and they're united. They're devoted in prayer. We know what they did. In light of Jesus ascending to heaven, this is what they did. So if you claim to be followers of Jesus, we have some steps we can follow. We have a pattern we can walk in, in, in those steps. So let's keep exploring. There, there's more for us actually to see what they did when Jesus, directly after Jesus ascended to heaven. So I'm going to ask Megan to come. She's going to be reading in Acts chapter 1 and verse 15 is where she'll start. Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. Acts 1, 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, know who the hearts of all, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And it says, then they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias. And he's numbered. There's a lot going on in that passage. Thank you, Megan, for reading that. There's the gruesome end story of Judas. The details aren't spared there. We see exactly what happened to the one who betrayed Jesus, the one who was a traitor. But more of this section is actually devoted to how are we going to replace him? How will he be replaced? And so the story is told of the replacement for Judas. Is this some kind of like an inner look at the next man up kind of thing where Okay, we got to get, you know, if someone can't do their responsibility, can't fulfill their role, can't play their position anymore, who's going to be the next one that'll kind of step in line? Is that what's going on or is there more to it? I think there's a lot more to it. And I think God wants us to know and live out some of the things that the disciples did immediately after Jesus ascended to heaven. But we have to pay pretty close attention to what's going on and, and look maybe even a little bit below the surface to understand it. I, w- I want you to notice a particular thing. In light of Jesus ascending to heaven, they actually pay close attention. The disciples pay close attention to what Jesus said to them. In light of Jesus ascending to heaven, the disciples pay close attention to what Jesus had said to them, what Jesus was talking about. How do you know if a person is really paying close attention? Well, 
Parents and teachers all over the world wonder that. How do you know if they're really paying attention? But one way, one way you would know someone is paying attention is if they began talking about the same things you were just talking about, if they were actually taking what you had talked about and applying it in other ways. So one way we might be able to discern, did they really pay close attention to what Jesus was talking about, is looking at what they begin to talk about in light of the last things Jesus was talking about. And you find something interesting. You look at the last chapter of Luke, and you don't have to turn there. We looked there a few weeks ago. And you find a common theme that Jesus was talking about after his resurrection and before he ascended to heaven. I just want to get you a, a sample of some of these themes. So in Luke chapter 24 and verse 25, Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is the Emmaus road, if you're familiar with kind of what, that part of the story. He says to some disciples, oh foolish ones, you're slow of heart to believe everything that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So a major theme of the end of Jesus' life before he ascends to heaven is the scriptures. And here he is opening their mind. He is explaining, he is interpreting to them what was going on in the Old Testament scriptures, the first 39 books of our Bible. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 32, the disciples are talking. They say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while Jesus talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Then you skip down in Luke 24 verse 44, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This is what we get at the end of Jesus' life before he ascends to heaven after the resurrection is that he interprets scripture for them. He opens scripture to them. They understand scripture. He sees his story as fulfilling scripture. This this is what was on the mind of Jesus, is scripture. And the disciples were listening because what were some of the first words of Peter that Megan read just a moment ago? Some of the first words out of Peter's mouth in verse 15, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And then even in verse 24, it is written in the book of Psalms. The disciples are paying close attention to the words of Jesus. And this is one way we know it is Jesus right before he ascended, is talking about the Scriptures and how God is fulfilling those. And now Peter is talking about the Scriptures and how God is fulfilling those. Particularly, Peter is applying that to the betrayal of Judas. The betrayal of Judas. Why would Jesus point them to Scripture and why would Peter see this as a major theme that they need to pay close attention to what Jesus was talking about? Because Scripture told the plan of God that He was working out on this earth. Scripture told them of the character of God, the plan of God, the work of God. When they process the death of Jesus, it's not some random event they're processing. They are meant to see God's plan in action even as Jesus was crucified. And so when they process the betrayal of Judas, they're meant to see that God 
had already talked about this in Scripture. And so Peter draws to their attention something that the Holy Spirit spoke through David, and that's in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, these words that promised and prophesied what would, what would happen to Judas, what he would do. Think about it. What, what was so critical for them to realize even as it relates to Judas? I mean, why, why are we before Pentecost, which is Acts 2, why are we stopping here to take time to figure out what happened with Judas and what comes after Judas's place has been taken? Why, why stop there? If you think about what Judas did, the personal betrayal of God in the flesh, can you think of another more wicked thing? You could think a long time of like the worst things in the world ever to do. And surely at the top of that list would be betraying Jesus. And that would be so significant. I mean, Jesus didn't pick 300,000 apostles. He picked 12, and one of those 12 proves to be a traitor. Is this something that's just going to blow a hole in the plan of God? Something so unexpected like, well, we... If Judas can't follow Jesus, then who really can't? Is this going to undermine? And is this movement of what Jesus has done, is that going to like be stalled before it ever gets off the ground because we can't figure out why Judas would do this? Actually, we find out through what David said, what Peter calls to mind, that if, if we interpret this in light of Scripture, which Jesus told us to do, God's plan is not thwarted. God is not somehow out of control. More than that, God is actually fulfilling promises. Look at what happened. Look at even the betrayal of Judas. And God knew how to use that, which Judas made a willful decision. God knew how to use that for his own glory, for the mission he was accomplishing. And if he can do that, then certainly he can work in any situation we might have. If the Holy Spirit spoke to David some thousand years before Judas ever did this, then surely God has a plan. I think we have to remind our own hearts and our own souls of that. I know we're talking about the big, like, core elements of our faith, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. But shouldn't we remind ourselves that the circumstances that may even seem to be the worst scenario, worst case scenario for us, Shouldn't we remind ourselves? Shouldn't we look to Scripture and recognize that God has a plan over this? And that plan stretches from eternity past to eternity future. Our God's not caught by surprise. Shouldn't we recognize that? Shouldn't we take that to heart? Shouldn't we recognize that we can see everything, even those things that look most disastrous to us? Shouldn't I realize, let's say, on, on Tuesday or on Friday, the thing that is causing me pressure, the thing that's causing me anxiety, the thing that hurts, the thing that is painful to deal with, shouldn't I recognize in those moments, as I look at Scripture, that God knows what, exactly what I'm dealing with. And if the betrayal of Jesus Christ was already in God's plan, then I think the things that are causing me pressure are certainly part of His plan as well. 
It's not as if he's grown incompetent or inattentive. He cares, he knows. They've been listening closely, haven't they? They've been listening that Jesus would say, interpret this, even the betrayal of Judas. Jesus would say, God had a plan. Jesus would say, there's scripture that we could read this circumstance in light of. They've been listening to Jesus too because one of their priorities is finding another witness to take Judas's place. Jesus had been talking about the, the 12 apostles. Even in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says there will be 12 apostles and they will sit on the 12 tribes of Israel to judge them. And now they recognize we only have 11. We need the 12th now. And so they begin to discern the process of picking the 12th. They begin to, to look at who is an eyewitness that, that saw Jesus' life, saw Jesus' death. Who will say, I saw it with my own eyes. I, I know he was dead. And I know he is alive. They're, they're paying close attention. They're listening to what Jesus says. So the question, the question I would have is, are you paying close attention to what Jesus has said? The disciples did. Jesus has pointed them to Scripture, pointed them to Scripture to understand the big plan of God. And the disciples continue to look to Scripture, and they look at the betrayal of Jesus through Scripture, through God's greater plan revealed in His Word. They take events and they process them in light of Scripture. So are you doing that? Are you soaking in Scripture? Are you soaking in God's Word? What I'm so encouraged about, church, what I'm so encouraged about is that I know, because I've had so many discussions, I know there are so many women and men who are doing that. They are soaking in God's Word. They are they're spending time listening to God's Word, reading God's Word, meditating on God's Word. They're doing it to, to be prepared to teach or to lead or facilitate a small group. I love the fact that at our church there are people that are, are taking time to, to read God's Word and, and are seeing in it a pattern for like, seeing God's world accurately and truly. This is why I, I think it's so important that we read God's Word and understand it. It's because there are a million things going on in your life. There are, there are a million things that you've got to process and figure out, what does that mean? What's going on there? Is that important? Should this be a priority? Should I be concerned about this? Should I not be concerned? How do I respond to this? There are a million of those things, and what, what, what is your authority for figuring out how to process it all? Is it a blog you read? Is it a podcast you listen to? Is it an afternoon talk show? Is it just that inner voice inside of you? What's your authority that's going to tell you, this is what matters. Give your life to this. This is what's going on in your world. This is what's going on. Is it, is it the news? Is it some form of entertainment that's going to say, this is ultimately what really, really matters. And a million years from now, this is what's going to matter. What's your source for that? And I find God has pointed us to the source for understanding our world and making sense of it. And that is His Word. I don't go to the Bible finding an answer to every single question, as if on page 1033, oh, there's the answer to that one. 
But when I do go to God's Word, I see this big story he is writing of redemption and restoration. I see the character of God. I see the ways of God. I see the way God interacts with sinners like myself. I see what happens when they pray. I see what happens when they depend on Him. And I begin to understand, okay, this this is teaching me who God is. This is teaching me what matters. So now I can go back to my life and, and see a thousand decisions that I've got to make. And I go, okay. I can begin to discern God's bigger plans, and man, that informs a thousand smaller things. Do you you hunger for God's Word like that? Do you spend quantity time, quantity time with the words of Jesus? Do you do it personally? Do you do it with others? Are, Are you investing quantity time in meetings where God's Word is read and explained and understood and enjoyed and celebrated. You say, well, Curtis, I'm not a quantity time guy. I think quality time is where it's at. I will say, I think relationships require both. But if I grant that, let me ask that question. The last 168 hours, quality time soaking in the big story of God. I'm not saying you'll understand every word of it, but listening, detecting patterns, understanding more than you did a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. Are you soaking in that? What did the disciples do after Jesus ascended? Well, we know they were paying very, very close attention to what Jesus had said to them. I have to admit, even as I I read this chapter again and again this week, this chapter is just not the norm of most chapters in the Bible. I mean, everyone's unique. This one has some interesting places. Like, how are they going to discern, get from 11 apostles, now we're going to get to 12? Well, verse 21 says, so, so they, they're going to pick one of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John. So that's probably at least three, three and a half years, until the day he was taken up from us. That's the ascension. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. I want you to even see that verse because in verse 21, something happens there that if you're not really paying attention, you you may not see it. Notice Jesus has a title in front of his name now. He's now called the Lord Jesus. And we we might read that and go, well, that's certainly we, we say the Lord Jesus Christ, but this is new in the book of Acts. Something changes here, and this is how he will regularly be referred to. It's not just Jesus, his human name, but also recognizing he has a name which is above every other name. Let's call him the Lord Jesus. So everything seems normal. We've got one, we've got two people. Let's pick between one of these. It says in verse 23, though, they put forward two. So we've got Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said... You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Like everything goes along kind of normal. And then verse 26, and I was like, wait a minute. And then they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. He was numbered with the 11 apostles. Casting lots is interesting. I kind of want to say, was there something more spiritual you could do? Because I know, I know when we make decisions of like who's going to be a pastor or a shepherding team member, we generally don't go, 
big straw, little straw. And I guess, I guess you're the person. It seems, so, it seems so different, doesn't it? This is like one of those, prime, if you've been in church any amount of time, this is one of those prime subjects that like a rabbit hole, a detour in a small group or a Bible study in which all kinds of hypotheticals. So you're saying, should we? And man, there's a million places this goes. So what do we do with it? What do we do with the fact that they cast lots? It is instructive to me. So here's my best attempt. And it still makes me scratch my head a little bit. True confession. They don't do it again in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. He gives them guidance. He gives his people guidance. So we don't find like Acts 10. There they do it again. They cast some more lot. They don't do it. This is the only time. It's, it's instructive to me. It's telling. But, but there's also, I, I put this in a couple other places in Scripture. A couple in the Old Testament. One's a little indirect. But I, I do find a connection and one's a lot more direct. So one of the indirect connections I find is with Joshua 18. And it stood out to me because as I found this cross-reference, as someone pointed this to me, I'm, I'm recognizing that Judas was numbered with the 12 and they're trying to replace that 12th position of someone who has an inheritance, who has a share, who's numbered. And I find in Joshua 18 when you've got 12 tribes and they're trying to figure out allotments and shares for each tribe, Joshua, the leader of God's people, casts lots, and they determine from that who gets what share, who, what's appointed, what pieces of land. So it seems like, again, an indirect connection. It doesn't like, oh, well, there, that all makes sense. No, but it is a connection of 12 and a share and casting lots. But I actually find a greater connection in Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. And you notice the way the Lord is written there. Capital L-O-R-D. In the Old Testament, that is an indicator to us that this is the covenant name of God with His people. This is Yahweh or Jehovah is the way we would bring it into our English. We would say this is the Almighty God. This is I am that I am. The lot is like the dice are thrown, but every decision is from the Lord. But what I find interesting when you come into Acts chapter 1 is they are looking to the Lord for the decision. It's just that actually it's, it's not the Father they're looking to for the decision. It's actually the Lord Jesus. That's who's just been referred to as the Lord in, in a few verses. Before this, in our passage in Acts, when they, ask, when they cast lots, they ask an answer of the Lord. They're asking not just the, the Father, but they're asking the Son, Lord Jesus, you show us. You know who you've chosen. Direct us to the right one. He is in the place of that kind of authority. The words that they use even when they address Jesus. When, when I compare to how they were talking to Jesus earlier in Acts 1, and how they talk to him later, it almost sounds like the same thing. And I learned something from this. So more than just going down the rabbit hole of casting lots and what does all that mean, I actually learned something bigger that, that moves my heart. You see, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when Jesus is physically present, 
they look at Jesus, and when they come together, they ask Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore your kingdom at this time? But notice in verse 24, it's almost the same words. Only now Jesus has ascended to heaven. But they're still talking to him. They're still talking to him. Lord, you know the hearts of all, so show us. Show us which one you've chosen. In essence, here's what's going on. Disciples, even after Jesus ascends to heaven, carry carry on a conversation with Jesus. That's what I find most compelling here. Even after Jesus ascends, they carry on a conversation with him. Prayer is usually to the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of the Son, but here it's a direct prayer to Jesus in Acts 1, and it's instructive to me. Last week I mentioned that when Jesus ascends, it's to a place of permanent power, and so in that place of power, they carry on a conversation with Jesus. But it's not just a place of power, Him ruling heaven and earth. I said it's also when He ascends, it's, it's for the purpose of closeness. It wasn't to be distant from His people, but through the Holy Spirit to be close. So when, G, when, when they want to talk to Jesus, it doesn't seem like He is absent or inattentive. It doesn't seem like He's inactive. And they've got to bring him up to speed on what's going on in his people's lives. Actually, it sounds exactly like when Jesus was there in the flesh with them. I'm instructed by that. We are meant to talk to Jesus as if he is active and present, not distant and inattentive. I, I love what I read. It, it just summarizes this point. It's by a writer named Alan Thompson, he says, Jesus not only has such authority that he may be prayed to, but Jesus is also continuing to direct affairs from heaven. The Lord Jesus is still ruling over his people, choosing which disciple will join the ranks of the other 11 apostles he has chosen, and controlling the outcome of the lot to bring about this appointment. Here's what they're saying. Jesus, you have the right, you have the authority to choose the designated eyewitness that's going to take this message to the nations. You have the right. You have the authority. So you aren't distant and you aren't inactive. We're going to ask you. Make your choice, Jesus. They're carrying on a conversation with Jesus. So what do we do now? What do we do now, church? Jesus has ascended to heaven. Physically, we don't, we don't see him with our eyes. How do we respond? Well, I want it to be true of my life. That I pay close attention to what he has said. I pay close attention to the scriptures that he's called my attention to. And I live my whole life in light of that story, which is the story. I want to carry on a conversation with Jesus. I don't want that to get cold or distant. I don't want to act as if I got a thousand really important things of which I just don't know that Jesus is that relevant to it. I, I don't want my heart to go there. I don't want that to be, of course, I'd never say that, but I don't even want to act that way. I want to carry on a conversation with the burdens, the, the pressures that I feel. 
I want to look at the lives of these disciples, see their priorities, see the pattern of what they did, and follow in that pattern. So with that in mind, I I want you to look again at these things that disciples do. Close our time together. A lot of times we sing and kind of join our hearts in worship right at the end before we leave. Today, I want us to close a little bit differently. In a moment, Chris Morris is going to come up and lead us in prayer. But if you've got a need, if you've got a burden, we can pray for you. There will be people that will be glad, men and women that will be glad to pray for you afterwards. If you're going to Pete's lunch, we'd love to have that discussion with you and love to invite any of you that would love to come over there. We'd be glad to have you. But for the next few moments, can we do this? We just ask the Lord what he's trying to tell us. You see what the disciples do. You see what they pay attention to. Where in our lives, what needs to change? If I could just give us a moment of quiet prayer before the Lord, and then again in just a moment, Chris is going to dismiss our time together this morning. God bless you as you hear from the Lord in these few moments. Father, we come before you as ones who have been rescued by you, as one who, who have the privilege of calling you our friend, our Savior. And Father, as we desire to know you better, as we desire to become more like your Son, God, give us the wisdom this morning to identify those areas of discipleship that we've neglected. We've perhaps even assumed a status quo is good enough. God, give us the eyes to see those areas in our life that aren't quite reflecting you the way they should. God, even give us wisdom as we uh, see those around us and how we're reflecting that. Are there certain certain targets we have in mind of we want to be able to reflect this to them, but we, we may neglect certain areas or certain others. God, give us the courage to be able to look at changing those things. Allow us to not just uh, pursue our own answers in our, in our head or in our heart, but allow us to dive into your word. Allow us to pursue uh, your truth in how we can apply this, God. Give us, give us wisdom as we open up your word. Allow us to be awake enough. Allow us to be alert enough to see what you have to teach us and see where in our life we can make these changes. God, give us this desire to be more like your son. Father, we pray as we go from this place again that, that we can continue dwelling on these things this afternoon, tonight, this week. Give us a greater desire this week to be in your word, to use our time wisely, to be opening up your word and growing that relationship in quality and in quantity. Because God, we love you. We want to reflect the, the great things you've done for us that we can, we can show that light to other people. We can draw others to you. God, allow us, and we thank you for that privilege to be a part of that process as your spirit moves. God, we ask your blessing on on the rest of our day, on the rest of our week, Um, but just allow this to be the the starting point, the launching pad of what our week is supposed to be as as we live it out to honor you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.